Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. about music it's so intrinsic to the movie that you can't talk about but it's kind of not it is that's the problem though is it's supposed to be and they fail to do it but now you need to go back and kick us off because now we're already like getting into the thing of like how how problematic it is let's kick us off i feel like we should like ring some kind of like fight bell because this is yep i'm rearing let's go All right, welcome to Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a podcast where I talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they have a connection to. Today, I will be talking to Brandis and Nicole, semi-co-hosts of this podcast. And today, we're going to talk about the 2000 Stephen Frears film, High Fidelity. Semi-co-hosts. I love that. I love how each time we get introduced, it feels like we get a slight demotion. Demotion? I was going to say promotion. Is it a promotion? I don't know. I don't know what we are, but we're here. And we're Yay! thrilled. So what are we talking about? We're talking about High Fidelity, the movie. Why are we talking about High Fidelity today, Ryan? We're talking about High Fidelity because in the year 2000, it was a big deal for me to watch a movie where there were characters who seemed to talk about the music that I talked about. I can't say all the terrible things about the music. Yeah, don't, <laughs> well, you get all sentimental on us, Ryan, because if you have I know, you just preempted my entire, like, stock of information. Well, I mean, it's it, I have a very complicated relationship with the movie. It's something that was kind of mind-blowing to me at the time. It was mind-blowing because in the like, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school who would talk, you know, listen to this stuff. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time also, you know, at record stores. So it was really fun for me to see that on screen in a John Cusack movie. Uh, But at the same time, I went to go see this with my friend Mike. So I was all hyped to go see it. My friend absolutely hated it. (laughs) Mike! And he was like, what kind of romantic comedy is this? And... To that point, he's kind of correct. It's a no, really bad not. romantic comedy. Mike was ahead of his time, I think. I think Mike knew the toxicity of this movie before the rest of us did. Because like you, Ryan, um, I was really entranced by all the same, like, whatever, uh, Y2K, early 2000s indie bands. And so there was something, like, really attractive about seeing that stuff talked about in what felt like a really big screen, big movie type of venue. But watching this movie, whatever, 21 years later, because this movie was from 2000, is that correct? Can someone verify my facts? Yes. This movie's from 2000. Watching it 20 plus years later, I think we can probably all agree that there are some things in this movie that do not age well. This is not a romance movie, and it is not a comedy. There is absolutely nothing funny in this movie. Not one second of funny. So I don't understand any categorization of comedy. You can say it's a romance, but a poor one. But comedy, no, not funny at all. It's a movie about music that fails to like portray music well. <laughs> so I think it's more successful in portraying music than it is in portraying relationships. Although I'm, I'm sure some would argue the opposite. Like, I feel like it, it's it's got a dark comedic presence, if anything. Like, it's it's grim. This movie is grim. Like, it's not about anything successful um, in terms of, like, romantic entanglements. I think we can all agree that Rob, John Cusack's character, is kind of a hateable protagonist, right? You can hold the kind of. He's miserable, and it's miserable to watch him. <laughs> He's, he's a miserable human being. He is a sad sack human. And much like the movie tells you, his only redeeming qualities are that he seems to know a whole fuck lot about popular culture and about music, which is which is great. Um, I feel like the scenes in the record store are what work for me. But the rest of this movie is a tough watch, man. It's a tough watch. <laughs> yeah, and it's strange because I really loved the movie for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it still works, though I do agree that he's a pretty terrible person. And basically, he gets bailed out because Laura's dad dies. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. 
Like that's his redeeming factor is that <laughs> her dad died. Factor. It's just he lucked out and he managed to not fuck that up also. <laughs> I just I want to know this is going to be a really non-linear conversation about high fidelity and the music of high fidelity but what I want to know what like my burning question rewatching this like some years later so I used to like it too, right? I was like that was a cool movie. Like it it seemed fresh at the time. And I'm rewatching it and I'm going like, wow, what was happening with like Y2K Chicago nightlife that somebody let this guy DJ in his like small glasses, right. in his Dickies shirt? Like what, what was he spinning? What was happening in these clubs? I had similar questions. I had similar questions also about the clothing and about like how he ended up being a DJ in like a nightclub, but like... Going back to what you said, like, my first time watching it was a long time ago. Like, maybe 10 years ago was the first time I saw it. And at the time, I thought it was, like, an interesting and different movie because, you know, it for, like, a movie's sake, right? Like, the whole breaking the fourth wall and um, sort of, like, the pacing. Like, it has a lot of, like, nice things to it as far as cinema goes. But in terms of, like, watchability, like, no, it was miserable watching it. <laughs> and in terms of, like the actual music like my thoughts toward the whole soundtrack and the extra music in the movie that isn't in the official soundtrack is just one giant mess like at one point they're arguing like the merits of like going for obvious choices more deep cuts but like irrespective of where you fall on that because I feel like there are actually some pretty like mainstream stuff on the soundtrack it's like even if you are going for more mainstream it's like I don't I don't feel anything for any of these songs like not one song was I like oh, yeah, like, this is, like, a totally, like, sick choice. Like, I was just, like, meh so, about yeah, music, which is fine for any other movie, but not a movie that's about music. See, I love when Brennis <laughs> hates something because then I get to provide the counterpoint and also feel like I'm some kind of crone on this podcast because <laughs> Brennis's youthful, youthful opinions make me feel uh, very aged. But I feel like, Bre- like what Ryan said at the top of it, right, is that this is specific to like a very niche experience of that time. So like when Rob is in the store and he's like, I'm going to now sell five copies of three EPs by the beta band. That moment kicks ass if you like the beta band and if you were listening to them at the same time, because you're like, yes, Somebody knows that. Somebody is like on the cutting edge of the same things that I like. I also listen to Bell and Sebastian and feel like I I dig like sad bastard music. Like there's a lot of things that uh, like from the time felt kind of instantly iconic. Like they took them from something super underground to being like, okay, well now, now it feels validating to know the shit that you like is stuff that like other people like too. It's kind of like the whole theme of the movie, right? Is, you know, even like those, their taste makes Yeah, but even those bands, like, I like those bands. I just don't like the songs they chose. <laughs> like, there are plenty of Bob Dylan songs that I like. There are plenty of Bella and Sebastian songs that I like. Just not these. <laughs> like, literally the whole movie, I'm just like, eh. It would be an interesting... In a way, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. So, I really like the soundtrack. I remember downloading it in college. LimeWire. Shout out to, to LimeWire. <laughs> Napster, Lime, LimeWire, Audio, Audio Galaxy, oh, yeah. Pirate um, Bay, Pirate Bay. Um, so I remember listening to it a lot. Like I don't feel like it got me into any new bands, except maybe the Beta Band. Yeah. Like I already kind of knew who the Kinks were, and I was already kind of uh, discovering the Kinks on my own before uh, High Fidelity came out. Like thirteenth floor elevators, like I got into them later, but I didn't get into them because of high fidelity. So in a weird way, like a lot of the music was great for the soundtrack, but it didn't like change my life. Like I felt like a movie about a record store should have changed my life. I, I will agree with you there. I think that there's there's kind of like a brusqueness that they treat this this like the music is almost there for like texture and for references. It's not really there like to linger on for very long. So if you're looking to this soundtrack to like get into something new, that's probably not that's not really like the intended purpose of the way that this soundtrack was put together. Like I think that the perfect example of this, like there's a smog song on the soundtrack called Cold Blooded Old Times. If you are a fan of Bill Callahan or of smog, like this movie, this song is barely in the movie. It's in there like as background. It's played really, really low. (laughs) Like you would never notice it, right? 
it's just not detectable. So there are a lot of things that are so lo-fi and so low-key that they kind of completely pass under the radar. And I don't know that they would be enough of a hook to go, okay, I'm going to totally go explore smog now. So that is a fair criticism, I think, of the soundtrack. I think that that's another good point that I'm going to in another way that I think that it fails, right? Because if you're doing a soundtrack, it's like either one, it's going to be, and especially when it's a movie about music, it's going to be like the most bomb ass soundtrack of like amazing cuts, you know, where you're like really pumped about the music because it's like in any other soundtrack, the music is not supposed to overpower the movie, right? Because it's supposed to be in the background. But when you're talking about a movie about music in a record store, it's totally fine if the music takes front stage. And in this, does not right but then it's also like to your point like texture and to add references to the plot points but i also feel like it fails there because it's so on the nose like you can look at the soundtrack list and the order of music that plays and literally the song titles are like see and say with what is happening in the movie which to me is like i get that at one point he's talking about the rules of making a mixtape and it's like using someone else's poetry to express your own feelings and i'm like you're kind of just highlighting like the main issue of the soundtrack, like with this movie. It's so painfully obvious and so painfully on the nose that like you're literally hearing lyrics that are like, you know, like closed captioning what's happening on screen. And like that annoys me as well. So like on both sides of it, I'm like, not a fan. <laughs> so there are allegedly there are allegedly 70 songs mentioned in this movie right? Somebody that's really ambitious on Spotify has probably made this playlist. So there's 70 mentions and they supposedly went through like 2000 tracks to call it down to those 70 mentions. So somebody curated this and thought like, these are the best choices to represent the action on screen. Like these are the best choices to represent a, you know, Chicago stuck up record store right now. Um, I think, again, like some of the things much like what happens in the storyline, they don't really age great. They're kind of aging like a cheese, but a string cheese, (laughs) you know, I've never heard anyone refer to Stereolab and Royal Trucks as on the nose, (laughs) not the band's choices, the how on the nose the lyrics are. Like it felt like they were choosing the songs because of the song titles and the lyrics to match the plot versus choosing the music to set the right mood or the right music for these characters or the setting. That's my well, point. It's kind they- of meta, right? Cause it's a mixed, it's kind of like the mixtape for the movie if you think about it. And that's exactly what it is, but it's not like meta is subtle and this is not subtle like it's literally like this chick is like leaving in the opening scene and the song is you're gonna miss me and it's like really (laughs) that that's like the lowest hanging fruit in the world it's not about how you're feeling it's not about what happens that caused her to leave like there's no subtle context it's just you're gonna miss me and it's like okay see i think you have to take yourself back to a before time so imagine if you will kids listening to the podcast a time without streaming, a time that if you didn't, as Ryan pointed out, have like a cool older brother or a, you know, cousin somewhere in a big city to send you that mixtape, you probably didn't know about the 13th floor elevators. You probably weren't into the kinks yet as a young person. So you were looking to record shops like this to be these kind of arbiters of cool and to sell you that Frank Zappa LP and to get you into shit that you hadn't heard of before. I think the greatest example of this in the movie is actually from, like, my favorite low-key character. So can we talk about Dick for a second? Let's talk about Dick. Does anybody even remember Love Dick? Him. You're all looking at me Love like... Him. Okay, so Dick is the character in the movie who is not Jack Black. Yeah, yeah he's the only one you don't hate in he's the movie. The only yeah, I know, I love him. Don't like, he's amazing. <laughs> he's probably selected for the movie because he looks vaguely like Moby, He's, you know, this, like, bald, thin, soft-spoken dude, right? But Dick is truly, and I can't believe they have the audacity to name him Dick. Like, that's, like, they're just going to put down his character even further. But he's the only one in the movie that actually, like, seems to have, like, a level of cool that's in keeping with, like, what we think of cool being in 2021. He's really nice to people. He has that girl walk into the shop, and he's like, oh, you like Green Day? Well, you might also like Stiff Little Fingers, so maybe we can, like, listen to that together and, and go on a date. And they totally, like, brutalize him for just being nice. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and yet, like he—he's the one, right? And he's the one that puts on Bell and Sebastian at the beginning of the movie, right? Like, but again, like he's my favorite character because he's like the closest to you know an an actual cool person, right? He's not Jack Black, who is obnoxious, and he's not uh, John Cusack, who is just utterly hateable and does not deserve love (laughs) or happiness of any kind. Yeah, no, Dick is absolutely my favorite character. Like, I love him. I think great casting. Um, Jack Black barely needs to be talked about. Like, apparently he was insecure with his performance in this film, and I'm like, you should have been because it was terrible. (laughs) Uh, I could, like, completely do without like he does not need to be in any movie ever can't stand him and i think he was like the weakest link of this film but did you know fun fact did you count all of the cusacks in this film there are four i know his sister's in it who are the other two cusacks also his other sister was like at a party at some point and then his dad is the minister for his for what what's her name laura Laura. Yeah, for Laura's at Laura's dad's funeral, the minister is actually John Cusack's dad. That so was a family affair. <laughs> wow. I mean, his sister was his therapist in Gross Point Blank, so I'm not that surprised. Oh, yeah, they were in like eight films together. Apparently, that's just like a thing. But I didn't realize that there were more of them. And I was like, holy shit, there were four of them. So many, but yeah, I think they're the only two that matter. It's like, that should be yeah. a sitcom. It's like, too many Cusacks. <laughs> can we also talk about like all another side note away from music but lisa bonet and Catherine zena jones are like everything and i love them in this movie especially lisa bonet well i'm pretty sure lisa bonet and her you know success of just being like the ultimate like slick cool beautiful everything oh, yeah. it chick is like exactly why they spun this off for um for zoe kravitz right which is a reboot yeah. that i have not seen so don't at me. I, I don't know that. anything about it. <laughs> I've seen it and I don't know why it was canceled because I actually like really enjoyed it. I liked it. But um, first of all, she is like an identical twin to her mother. Like Lenny Kravitz had no say <laughs> in that like genetic gene pool because it is like Lisa Bonet and Zoe Kravitz are just like cloned. Second of all, um, can we talk about like that family and how just like beautiful and sexy like that family is? Because now you have like Jason Moma and Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet. Like I just want them to be a throuple so that I can like come into them and be like, can we be a quadruple? Like I want to be a part of this. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this to turn into a People magazine feature. I was honestly well, not expecting it. moment with Will McGregor. Why can't I get my moment with the throuple that I want to be a quadruple? I, I mean, I wasn't expecting this tangent from you, but I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting to talk about throuples today. <laughs> I mean, Lenny Kravitz and Jason Moma have like a bromance going on. Like they love each other. There's like no animosity there. It's like one big happy family. Well, like, they actually call it one love. And I'm like, can I be a part of it? Oh my God. This is like, this is really weird. Like in Brandis's <laughs> internet search history right now. <laughs> the thing that I, I think they all have in common though is that, yeah, they are all like incredibly ethereally beautiful. Um, yeah. Which is why it's so weird that Lisa Bonet beds down with John Cusack's character in this movie. Well, he even like feels <laughs> the necessity to give an explanation. Like he's right. literally like, "How did this happen? Let me explain." And I'm like, "But you still didn't really explain, right? Still haven't gotten the justification because this should never have happened." The fact that there's a whole <laughs> piece of monologue, that there's a whole like breaking the fourth wall speech about like, "Hey, I know what you guys are all thinking out there," and it's kind of like how it happened. <laughs> and then you see like this whole frantic scene in the bar of him like talking about like music and pop culture with her and shit. It's still not believable. You can monologue that all day and there is just absolutely nothing. I I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. This is like, I know that he has a lot of natural charisma and, you know, big, big, big love for John Cusack. Right. But his character is not it. Yeah, no. He and this character are two very different people. And this character has no game and no redeeming quality. (laughs) And I just love the fact that, like, he also gets to just, like, talk about his emotional bullshit after sex (laughs) like she doesn't just kick him out like i had a good time bye like she humors you know this whole like oh like i'm trying to like figure my shit out and she's like okay i'll talk to you about it (laughs) 
right? Yeah. I think maybe he's like more of an unreliable narrator than we're like actually like thinking of. And half of this movie did not really happen. I think it'd be less problematic if that was true, because I think going back and contacting your exes to figure out like why you keep on fucking shit up is like a super like weird thing to do. Well, I mean, (laughs) speaking of that, do we have Rob to blame or do we have Bruce Springsteen to blame? Because technically, if you're looking at the movie and taking it at face value, it's Bruce Springsteen that tells him to go back through his exes. Like, that's a good idea. Tell us how you feel about Bruce Springsteen. Okay, so... (laughs) I have a couple of different, very love, beautiful, wonderful, sweet friends who I hope are not going to listen to this podcast, who are absolute <laughs> super fans of Bruce Springsteen. But I think in this situation, somebody needed to demote the boss. Like, it's just such bad <laughs> advice. It's such bad advice. And it also cracks me up that apparently Bruce Springsteen like wasn't even a choice for this movie. It was no, supposed it was to be Bob, to be Bob Dylan. Dylan. It was supposed yeah. to be Bob Dylan, which makes sense because there's Blonde on Blonde gets referenced. There's, I think, more than one Bob Dylan reference in this film, which is in keeping with the kind of elitist snobs that they are about music, right? I don't understand how Bruce Springsteen even enters into that conversation or into that same kind of like pantheon of artists that they would like bow to. So it's super weird that he's the one in that dream sequence telling him like, yeah, go ahead. Contact your exes. (laughs) Meet me in New Jersey. Sorry, go ahead. Apparently it's in the book. Bruce is in the book. Yeah. Dang. Really? But then I was going to say, because it's underscored by the fact that there are no Bruce Springsteen references in the music that they're talking about, nor is he a part of any of the music that's like playing besides, you know, him obviously strumming like in that moment. Like he is not referenced musically in any way. He just happens to be like this muse in this like sequence. And it's weird. But yeah, it was supposed to be Bob Dylan, which makes way more sense. It's a reference to the Springsteen song, Bobby Jean. Brandis and I are both looking at Ryan like, what does that even? (laughs) Yeah. If you say so, I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's inspired by a reference in Hornby's book where the narrator wishes he could handle his past girlfriends as well as Springsteen does in his song Bobby Jean on Born in the USA. Okay, well, this is a good time to completely out myself as a person who has not spent a lot of time in Bruce Springsteen's catalog because he's just one of those singers that I can never fully invest myself in. I think because he was so huge growing up that like that ubiquitous like born in the USA at every fireworks show and and I know that's not representative of his entire career as an artist by any means. So again, don't at me. I'm sorry if you really like Bruce Springsteen. I know he has more stuff, uh, but it's just, it's just, I don't know. And his voice always sounds like he's straining on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have all of Jack Black's fans and Bruce Springsteen's fans. <laughs> yeah, you're going to gonna lose us. like a few followers off of this one. I mean, no, the Tenacious D fans alone are going to be... I can't. Angry. I can't. DM. Also, another fun fact, Tenacious D actually performed at the premiere for this movie, but it was actually way, way, way before Tenacious D was even like a well-known band. So it's so fucking meta because you end this movie with Jack Black being like, I'm debuting my band. And then in real life, at the premiere of this film, he's like, I'm debuting my band. And then years later, people are like, ooh, Tenacious D. And I'm like, it sucks. (laughs) Well, they already had the HBO show. (laughs) They were a thing. They were were sort of a thing. Like they were the burgeoning thing right right i don't know he didn't want to be in this movie so apparently he had other stuff going on because what i read was that he jack black read the screenplay to this movie and he was like no i think i'm gonna pass but they wrote the role for him so he eventually came around or got i don't know lost an arm wrestling contest or something and yeah they like got him on board but then he wanted to quit like four separate times and the director was like no stay no stay no stay you know i mean like tenacious two was around but they weren't like big like they were like after. yeah they hadn't released their album yet or yeah, any yeah. Of their movies. yeah yeah so they weren't like tenacious d as we know it but, like, but as, as far as jack black singing in movies this is probably as bearable as he gets outside of school of rock because it's not his song that's why <laughs> Well, he does make up that song when Laura's daddy died. Which is, I mean... I wasn't counting that as music, so I'm going to stick with what I said. He sang one song, and it was not his. 
So, so Brandis, do you want Jack Black's version of Let's Get It On to play during your thruple? Is that what goes on during your fantasy about no? No. Or is it Lisa Bonet's cover of of uh, that UB40 song? I mean, I'll take anything over Jack Black singing anything. <laughs> I'll take the Backstreet Boys over Jack Black any day. Really? And I mean that. I so mean that. Like, I hate Jack Black. All right, let's go back to the year 2000, because I think context is important. Context is important. Context is everything. Okay, baby Brandis, we're bringing you back. So so this movie was very well received by the critics. I believe Rotten Tomatoes has it in their top 25 of romantic comedies of all time. Stop. But it's but, neither. But let me, so let me, let me speak to that. So I think that in the year 2000, it was considered kind of a progressive movie, it it uh, resists a lot of romantic comedy tropes. I feel like this is during the heyday of Julia Roberts's romantic comedy uh, domination. So, like, it's good counterculture to that. You know, it's a movie that doesn't have, like, some grand epiphany of, you know, oh, like, I need Laura back. It has no huge gesture at the end of the movie to save their relationship. And I think in this time, there were a lot of movies that were considered like really deep like that, even though they've aged poorly. I'm thinking especially like Chasing Amy. Mm, yes. <laughs> and maybe even a little bit of American Beauty, um, even if you ignore Kevin Spacey's past, like that movie hasn't really aged well either. And that yeah. was considered pretty like bold at the time. And I think it was just kind of like that era of film where people are pushing the boundaries a little bit and getting rewarded for it. And now you look back and you're like, why? Yeah. Ch- Chasing Amy Actually, is like perfect. That's such a perfect, uh, yeah. yeah, like bookend, right? Because they're definitely cut from that same cloth of like, we're going to do a bunch of wild shit that feels really like sexually progressive and that feels really like boundary breaking and it's going to feel really, and it did at the time. At the time, it was like, yeah, I don't want to see Runaway Bride, but I really appreciate this and, you know, what it's trying to do. I think it's just culture has progressed so far in the past 20 years that maybe the only thing that does stand up are some of the songs in the soundtrack, but the, the movie itself feels, uh, yeah, like it's just striking the wrong notes. If you want to argue that movie characters that are main characters should be likable, if you're looking for a movie with like the most hateable protagonists that you're not really told how to feel about, then this is it for you. Like, this is the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that this fails as a movie. Or Chasing Amy. Or Chasing Amy. Watch that too. I don't think that this movie or Chasing Amy fail as a movie in any regard. I think it still holds up. Like, it doesn't hold up culturally and, like, what's acceptable culturally. But I still think it holds up as cinema. Absolutely. I just don't think it's a romantic comedy and, like, never was. Like, SVU also, like, doesn't have romantic comedy tropes. But that doesn't make it, like, a counterculture romantic comedy it's just not a romantic comedy and i feel like this is more of like a character drama like honestly it is it's more it's a more movie about arrested development it is yeah that's the theme it's <laughs> yeah. like you're just stuck in this perpetual state of like man childness that's basically what rob is and the relative maturity of laura of the woman that he supposedly ends up with at the end is like a counterpoint to that right you can see how she's Mm -hmm. actually doing something not only with her life but she's you know empathetic towards other people whereas rob doesn't lift a damn finger for anyone except himself which is truly hard to watch um much harder to watch than laura's very small baby bangs (laughs) i was so confused by this the whole time i was like was this on purpose did he cut your like hair in the middle of the night because he was pissed about something? Like, yeah, what's happening? Here? No, I'm pretty sure that like one inch bang was just like the height of cool in the year 2000. Uh, the first time I ever saw Phoebe Bridgers live, so her her in between song banter is super dry, but it's super killer. And you know, there's like this dead silence between one of the songs, and she goes. Uh, last time I played here, like, I have really bad memories of it, and I thought she was gonna, like, talk about Ryan Adams. Oh, yeah. But then she goes, uh, I have bangs, <laughs> and if, and if you have really, and if you have, uh, Widow's Peak, don't get bangs. <laughs> Sound advice. That's incredible. 
I was like, I didn't know I was going to learn something today. <laughs> yeah. Man, she's amazing. She's 100% correct. Unimpeachable, that Phoebe Bridges. Bridgers. Anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to the music in this movie, though. Ryan, I know you have, like, some deep affinities for some of these tracks or some of these artists, right? Like, what on here is still working for you in the year 2021? Oh, the beta band. Right? The way that he sells five copies of the beta band in that movie is way more effective than Zach Braff putting headphones on Natalie Portman. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you change someone's life, people. Yeah, I still listen to that song. Right? I love that moment. I loved that moment, but that song just didn't do it for me. Yeah. I mean, it does it for me more than New Slang by The Shins. <laughs> <laughs> the Shins are definitely one of those bands that, like, they they belong to a certain time. I can't listen to them now. That seems cruel, because it's not like I didn't listen to them then, because I totally did. It's like, did I change? What happened? Yeah. I don't know, but it definitely doesn't. But yeah, I mean, like... Stereo Lab holds up. The Beta Band holds up. There are a lot of. I mean, the Kinks are good. The Kinks are, the kinks are timeless. Kinks are timeless mm-hmm. forever. So I mean, as yep. as a whole, as like you know, a, a soundtrack body, like I feel like it does definitely hold up, right? Um, I wish personally that this was a movie that was entirely about running a record store and had nothing to do. <laughs> with rob's romances i wish it was the dick well i think (laughs) yeah i think the problem with making the movie just about running a record store is i'm sure that the notes for like from the producers were like this better not be empire records (laughs) 2.0 yep Mm-hmm. Yep, and I mean they definitely exist in a similar in a similar sphere um, as Empire Records, right? But yet not. This movie is darker, and I think maybe the soundtrack is a reaction to the Empire Records soundtrack, where it just seemed like we have this really awesome soundtrack, and we're going to make a movie that features this music. <laughs> That's kind of what it feels like sometimes when you watch Empire Records. Um, But High Fidelity is like, okay, we can't stuff this with like the Gin Blossoms and bands that are not going to be important in 20 years. So we're just going to stick it with like a lot of safer choices. Sure. Except Mm -hmm. the beta band. Yeah, I think that's a good word to describe it. It is safe. So the person who put the music together for the movie or at least worked with them, her name is Kathy Nelson. And she has quite the uh, quite the IMDb page. A lot of times she's an executive in charge of music, but she also um, has a lot of she has quite the accolades for being a music supervisor. She did uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. She did um, she did Rushmore, or at least she worked on Rushmore. Wow, is there a lot of heavy hitters? And then Eternal Sunshine. She is credited as music guru okay so i mean that is basically the most impressive list of credits um all apologies to kathy nelson because if we're ripping on this soundtrack it has nothing to do with kathy's tastes obviously <laughs> and everything yeah, to no, do with uh, probably there was a note somewhere at some point that was like making a little bit safer a little bit more like bands that people are familiar with yeah i think it probably was important to them to have a soundtrack where there's no like big duds you know where 20 years later you're like oh the high fidelity soundtrack had a bunch of swing bands on it like (laughs) how can this be an authentic movie about record stores when they were like super into swing it's saw it's mighty mighty boss tones was that a thing then (laughs) was swing even like (laughs) yes yeah really really wow Floyd. Yeah, like ska makes way more sense as something that was popular twenty years ago than swing. 
I like did not even think that swing was like like MTV was playing for, swing like, videos for sure. And I think unless you, I think unless you suffered a an adolescence or a young adulthood in like 1999, 2000, like right around that era where everything was mostly dominated by you know Christina Aguilera type pop music and then terrible revivals of things like whatever fourth wave ska or swing bands or things that like you know whatever. I still remember kids showing up to prom in like zoot suits. Sorry, I'm mm-hmm. like, do you remember zoot suits, Ryan? Like, instead of like tuxes, like dudes would just be like, you know, it would be really great for prom is a zoot suit where my pants don't fit and I look like Jim Carrey from The Mask. I really hope they play zoot suit riot. <laughs> and they probably did at prom. But again, I think like this is a perfect example. Because then my zoot suit will make sense to everybody. <laughs> a little on the nose, though. Brandis was like, that's just a little bit too. <laughs> I'm just like I wasn't like I was aware of music at that time I was alive I was like listening to music but I guess I was just like so wrapped up in like Incubus and like (laughs) Nine Inch Nails that like none of this shit existed in my world I have no idea what the hell you're talking about I think it's also important to consider that the main characters in this movie are what 30 years old in the year 2000 does that seem accurate yeah Okay, so they're they're older, right? And if you're older, you're 30 years old and you're in 2000, like some of the things that you cut your teeth on or that you first found like in a record pile at a garage sale are going to be things like Velvet Underground. So it makes sense for like those references to show up. But Rob does also have a slanted and enchanted poster in his apartment and i remember like that being a big deal to me right because i think whoever you were at that time you could find some scrap from that movie like looking at his like top shelf in his apartment and say like oh my god brian eno's there i also know that record so something in there like felt like resonant for you Mm -hmm. and in a way that hadn't at that point i think been really portrayed in a movie because it was so kind of seen and and underground and, and not something that was being like celebrated on any kind of mainstream stage. I think a lot of their references in the album covers and the things that they talk about and what you see as like Easter eggs in the set design were probably a lot more like on purpose, esoteric and like underground and like, you know, Easter eggs for people really into the music scene. Versus the music that they're like literally playing in the film or like on the soundtrack, they wanted to be speak to like a more wider audience because a lot of the stuff that they do mention or like show is like more like underground than the actual soundtrack itself. Well, I do love that the kids in the movie that he ends up signing to his record label, their music is Royal Trucks, Mm -hmm. which was not popular then and never became popular. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, but, you know, it's like it's sort of that like super, super indie, like very of that scene, very like specific choice, like the tortoise. I think it's the guitarist from tortoise that's in the backing band for Jack Black. Is that right? Oh, OK. I, that sounds about yeah, right. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's that it's like a very it's a very specific time. I'm actually very shocked and upset. Ryan will appreciate this. that like Spoon isn't on this soundtrack because every time I go to revisit this, I think Spoon should be there because it's kind of like the ultimate like Chicago indie band of that time. And they're just not there. Like what, what the hell happened with Spoon? You would think they would have embraced the Chicago indie scene a little bit more in general. A bit more, right? Mm-hmm. At least make a Steve Albini reference at some right! point. Right. Like I, even more so, but I think to Brandis's point, I think, um, I think there are Easter eggs for people that were really hardcore. Like, okay, here's some bands that you may know from like that very hyper local scene. And then here's um, Jack Black singing Marvin Gaye. (laughs) If you're into that sort of thing. So for as much as this movie doesn't work in some ways, especially with Rob Gordon, like the movie's just so well directed and written where, you know, it's kind of like chasing Amy where, you know, Kevin Smith even admits now, like, it's kind of a sci-fi movie mm. with the idea that, you know, you can just turn a lesbian straight because you tried really hard. <laughs> like, you know, there's that personal, like, connection in the movie, you know, because it's a metaphor for, I think, his relationship with Joey Lauren Adams, where, like, you know, it's still affecting in a lot of ways. Mm. And I think High Fidelity is kind of the same, where even though he's this awful character and doesn't really deserve love, like there's still things in the script that are pretty poignant. Like I think when he finally 
gets his shit together with Laura and he talks about he he gives this like metaphor for relationships where like you know when you meet someone on like a Friday night and you know the girl goes home with you she's wearing like her fancy panties because like she knew that this might happen but as the guy you know I assume that it would be fancy panties all the time and that there wouldn't be just like regular cotton panties or whatever and like that conversation was as as dudish as it sounds i thought it was very poignant at the time it's something i still think about not that it's like my philosophy of life but i was like oh that was like a well-written like description of like how relationships are well i mean i think where it does succeed is that they did convince john cusack to to break the fourth wall and to give these pieces of monologue that i'm just gonna go ahead and assume are, are lifted from the nick hornby book and and they feel they feel well-written, right? So even if they don't entirely land or maybe they don't entirely make sense with um, today's politics, like some of them still do have like that, okay, yeah, I I get that. He doesn't want to hop from rock to rock, right? His his conclusion makes sense. But I think what's frustrating about the movie is that there's no real atonement for, you know, what he did wrong. There's no real like self-actualization. And it's it's the kind of thing where like if the movie were made today, there would probably be some moment of aha that says, I've been a selfish asshole and I should probably rectify that so that I can have a real and reciprocal relationship with another human. <laughs> Yeah, like rock hopping is very different than straight up cheating on your girlfriend and then completely going insane on her because she breaks up with you and then starts a relationship with like someone else. Like, yeah, there was no atonement for that. Like we just kind of glossed over the fact that like we know he cheated on her in the middle of the relationship. Like we never go back and address that. He's just like, yeah, I did that. And then it's like, keep going. Yeah, they, like, no, they never they never address that. You know, there should be some like a song crescendo, like some really on the nose, like song moment. It's like, oh, I get it now. Like, I see what I did wrong. I see the error of my ways. But no, he never really sees it. He just accepts that like she is, I don't know, his like comfort. It's almost insulting to her. Like, you're, you're the best yeah. I'm going to do, Laura. So we're, you, I love your bangs, baby go oh yeah that spontaneous proposal was all like settling it was like oh yeah these fantasies but it wasn't like he came to the realization that the fantasy isn't like what i want it was just fantasies aren't real therefore i'm gonna choose what's in front of me because it's real and i'm like wow she must feel really special i mean (laughs) it's also kind of insulting to her that the only other option she has in the movie is tim fucking robbins as this kind of like steven seagal-esque Next I was like, girl, you must be so unhappy for that to be your rebound. Why? <laughs> right? It's like, you didn't listen to Phoebe Bridgers. You got those bangs. And that's how you end up with Tim Robbins. Who apparently, the biggest thing that convinced him to do the film was they made a wig for him. That was a wig. And that like was what got him to sign up because he was so excited about that wig. So disgusting. Yeah. I actually blocked no, out but- that he was even in that movie until you said that thing, Brandis. I was like, I just completely wiped that from my brain because that had nothing yeah. to do with music and I did not like it and it made me uncomfortable. No, I think it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that's the point. He's like an uncomfortable character and you're like, I understand why you haven't had sex with him yet and I don't understand how it's eventually going to happen. <laughs> Nor do I want to. Yeah, no. Uh-uh. He's probably yeah. in the movie for five total minutes, but in those five minutes, he leaves the grossest impression. It is the absolute worst. I think there are these these are the moments and the characters and the kind of things in the movie that like they're so not enjoyable, really. And I also don't truly enjoy Jack Black. Sorry again for <laughs> anyone out there that likes all of these really popular things. I know I'm in the minority. I know this is not a popular opinion. Uh, but this is like why I'm like, okay, the cool parts of the movie to me are mostly, they mostly revolve around the music. That's why I liked it. Yeah, like the whole record store thing in that culture, like really cool. And the writing is phenomenal, but like the characters are miserable and it makes you miserable to watch them. And half of the casting really great. Other parts of the casting is very obnoxious. <laughs> but what doesn't make me miserable, because the people are miserable in this for the most part, right? But what doesn't make you miserable 
if you've spent any time in record stores and that's a thing for you, like that's a place of, I don't know, comfort and acceptance, especially like throughout this pandemic and not being able to go the places that you love and talk to the people that you want to talk to about the things that you love. The songs that they chose are very like, they're things that people have on vinyl and you can kind of like hear the hiss and the pop and the crackle and they feel very lived in. And there's something lived in and real about a record store. And so I can kind of appreciate the choices that they made in terms of like including the Velvet Underground and the 13th floor elevators. I get that. Like it just, I feel that, right? Did you know that this was originally supposed to take place in Boston? What? Well, that would have been a totally different soundtrack. Totally you would have different. had to have some sort of like Irish, like Boston influences in there somewhere. <laughs> So apparently Kathy Nelson has enough sway to convince basically Disney, who, you know, I think one of their subdivisions put out the movie. She basically convinced them, like, you know, like, John Cusack could rewrite this movie and his team, like, they're pretty good. I worked with them on Gross Point Blank. And so that's how John Cusack got the gig, because the music supervisor had that much sway. Wow. <laughs> Again, big, up, big ups to Kathy. Yes. The Boston thing is weird. Um, and the Boston thing feels maybe like an attempt to bridge the gap between the setting and the book, which because the setting of the book is supposed to be in the UK somewhere. Right? London, London. Yeah. yeah. So like it almost feels like, OK, well, we'll just go to like <laughs> Boston town. instead. But like would New York not be the most obvious choice? I'm surprised it wasn't in New York. Yeah. Who knows? They were probably looking for something less obvious than New York. I don't know. I, who knows what that history is, but that's super weird. I think they just don't want to have to deal with the accents. I wouldn't want to have to deal with the accents. Can you imagine, like, the band they discover is, they're all, like, Bostonians, and they're all, like, hanging out outside of Duncan or something? Ben Affleck? <laughs> it's just, like, such a weird choice. It feels like you can't shoot something in Boston without it addressing Boston, right? Like, it can't be, like, agnostic of it. Right. And, like, Chicago, like, you see the references. Like, you see the river. You see, like, the trains. And so it's very clearly mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to, like, lean into Chicago. Like, you don't have to talk about pizza. Like, it's fine. <laughs> Boston I know, but they should have so talked about some of the, the music of Chicago, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But I just mean like Boston as a place outside of music. But even the music itself is so specific and so loud that it's hard to just be like, you know. Hey, you guys going to go watch Flog and Molly next week? <laughs> exactly. Like, how do you set something about music in Boston and not address that? You can't. <laughs> I like them apples, Rob. I can't do Boston accent. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. So about six years ago, it was the 25th anniversary of High Fidelity. So Red Bull was doing this uh, L.A., like they're doing a bunch of shows and movie screenings in L.A. They're sponsoring a bunch of stuff. And so they did a screening of High Fidelity. And then I guess they also decided to like release the soundtrack on vinyl for the first time. Okay. At the end of this Red Bull um, month of concerts and stuff, they had a secret show at the Terragram Ballroom in, in downtown L.A., and I decided to buy some tickets for that. They're, it was basically free. It was like $5, like just basically to enter the raffle. So I got two tickets. So Eunice and I went. And it was described as like a hip-hop slash pop show. And when we got there, they're like, oh, you got to stay for the whole show if you want the gift bag. And I was like, we get gift bags for this? Cool. <laughs> okay. So the first act was this rapper from Toronto. I think his name was like Jazz Cartier. He was pretty fun. And so we're waiting for the headliner to uh, to go on. And like there's these guys in front of me who they're trying to figure out who it's going to be. And a guy that had been hanging around the venue like before the show started was like this bald black guy with like a big long goatee. And he walked by and one of them was like, oh, shit, man, it's going to be Death Grips. <laughs> and I was like, I don't. And I was like, I don't think Death Grips is headlining Red Bull's super corporate <laughs> secret show. I mean, probably not, but I mean, was it? I mean, they have a they have a really bad reputation for fucking over corporate sponsors, so I don't think this is how it's going to go for Red Bull. <laughs> Plus the guy's got a shirt on, pretty sure that's not the guy from Death Grips. 
<laughs> was it Jack Black, like in a wig? Like who was it? <laughs> I need to know. So then all of us, so all of a sudden we see a bedazzled microphone head from one side of the stage to the other, and it was Nicki Minaj. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that was a hard left. <laughs> what? I did not anticipate that. What was in the gift bag? So we saw Nicki Minaj. We saw her perform for an hour. She peaced out. We got her gift bags. And the only thing I remember from the gift bag is a copy of High Fidelity on vinyl. That has that bears like no relation to anything. No, that about makes no High sense. Fidelity. I mean, unless she covered like all of the fake album, like the fake track list from Lisa Bonet's. <laughs> Which would be amazing. She's like, just for you guys, the song samples the beta band. Let's go. <laughs> I read what somewhere. makes me less. Go ahead. I read somewhere that the the Lisa Bonet like fake album has a bunch of covers on it, and there's like a Celine Dion cover. There's like an Mbop cover. Like they don't feature in the movie, but they're like listed on the back of a CD that they end up taking with them or something, which is just That's hilarious to me. Like I wish somebody, I wish Lisa Bonet would like come and do like all of those. Uh, yeah, like Lisa Bonet does Hanson, like Mbop, like that would be fucking hilarious. I'd love to see the the characters in the record store listening to that CD. Yes. And pretending <laughs> that it was good as her UB40 cover in the club. Right. Right. Yeah. Brandis, is Mbop by Lisa Bonet's character in High Fidelity what plays in your imaginary thruple? Well, it does now. <laughs> <laughs> Now that you gave me that option, you're like, absolutely. I want to soundtrack this for you. I mean, this is soundtrack your life, right? Let's just put together a mixtape for Brandis while she's thinking about Zoe Kravitz, Lenny Kravitz, and Jason Momoa. Well, no, 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 no. Not Zoe Kravitz. Lisa Bonet, Jason Momoa, Lenny Kravitz. You just made this very weird and incestuous. Did I make it weird? I made it weird. I think you made it weird first. You made it very weird. To be fair. There's a health cover of the Baywatch theme. <laughs> I want to go back and talk about how I think you just dropped some knowledge that high fidelity vinyl was not an immediate thing when like the soundtrack first came out. How do you have a soundtrack about a record store that carries vinyl that features heavily vinyl and is not immediately available on vinyl? Tell them, Ryan. Tell the vinyl wasn't a big thing until like 10 years it later. It wasn't. And that's the thing. Like, this is the context, right? Is that like, if you were in a record shop in the year 2000, you were doing something that most people were not doing. It seems like a commonplace, whatever, everybody collects records. Everybody has like a, you know, Crosley turntable somewhere because they're a hipster, right? No, this was not a thing. Like, I think there's a line in the movie that addresses this. It is like, it's basically like young dudes that come to this shop that are really, really into music, that are very hardcore, and we don't sell anything. Like, we're not here to make money because nobody's buying records. And if you collect <laughs> records, which I do because I'm a dork, it's really hard to find things from that era. And if you do find things from, like, the early 2000s, late 90s, like, they're always worth a lot of money. Like, if you get original pressings from that particular time period, mm -hmm. it's not like a, it's not a common thing. And they were definitely not pressing soundtracks. Like, this is going to be huge. Although it makes sense that they would because it's a movie about a record store. Right? <laughs> they were probably just like, how would we how would we scale this? Like, where would we sell it? Like, record stores don't really exist. Completely unrelated. But can we talk about that, like, hot second where, like, vinyl was suddenly so mainstream again that it wasn't cool enough for the hipsters? So they started listening to cassette tapes again? Oh, cassette tapes. Remember when cassette tapes yeah. like three years ago tried to be a thing again? I mean, cassette tapes are fully a thing. Like if you if you go into a record shop now, there's always a wall of cassette tapes. And from what I have heard from my uh, local proprietors uh, is that kids buy them, like young people buy them for their old cars. That's what I'm saying, because it's like vinyl. I think Owen Flint was really onto something with those boom right? boxes. Right. <laughs> It's because like vinyl's not cool again because it's so mainstream now that like we have to become more of a hipster and be more esoteric and more counterculture. So suddenly it's cassette tapes. They started selling them in like Urban Outfitters. I think we should like, yeah have a remake of High Fidelity with like CDs. <laughs> it's just a CD shop, like the kind that had the listening stations back in the day that you would like put the headphones on and you would be like, I'm gonna listen to. 
at least CDs you can like listen to, but like cassette tapes, like come on, all they do is like bunch up and melt. Like <laughs> they're unusable. That's fair. Low fidelity, <laughs> the movie. Yeah, it's low fidelity and something's not going to last. Like you listen to it four times and it's a mess. It's bad enough the digital versus analog, you know, vinyl versus, you know, streaming or not streaming, but vinyl versus just like studio quality digital files and people saying, you know, vinyl's really not a better audio format. And then people are like, oh, what about cassettes? <laughs> right. Remember when it melts and it does that thing? Yeah. Really missed that. Somewhere out there, there's an audiophile <laughs> podcast, and those people are listening to this, and they have so much shit they want to say. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there are people looking to fight us with their fists about different audio formats. And I feel like maybe those are the people that should guest on the show next time and talk about high fidelity. <laughs> My friends did actually buy me something from the record store that they filmed High Fidelity at. Like, I didn't even ask for it. Like, oh, I was in Chicago visiting our other friend who lives there. Like, I got you something from the High Fidelity record store. So I feel like it's an important movie to people. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a huge cult classic. And like I said, like, as a movie, I still totally love it. I just don't like the characters. You just don't think I it's don't a comedy really it. or romantic. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, good characters yeah. romance, and I don't like the soundtrack. Yeah. No, we know you love it. Stop. <laughs> I just fast forward to the parts where there's dick, and then I then the movie's over. <laughs> no, and Catherine Zeta-Jones and Lisa Bonet. You're forgetting those two. Love Catherine Zeta-Jones in this. I think she's hilarious. Uh, yeah, my, my main takeaway from High Fidelity in uh, 2021 is is that the legacy of high fidelity is maybe bigger and more important and more enjoyable than the movie itself you know i almost kind of want to i want to remember the nostalgia of what it was so much of this movie revolves around like nostalgia right so let's just keep the, the mm-hmm. good parts about high fidelity and let's not talk about all the problematic toxic <laughs> <laughs> shit with their protagonist yeah, I'm glad that my takeaway from this movie wasn't like, oh, I should be more like Rob. <laughs> right? Somewhere, somewhere there is someone who is like, yeah, he gets me. <laughs> I mean, all over probably. I'm sure there was like a whole subgenre of dude when this got released that um, identified with this in a really major way. And that is super unfortunate to think about. <laughs> Well, I just like that his kind of arc ends with, like, I'm going to start a record label, which is probably a worse idea than owning a record store. (laughs) Yeah, where do we think Rob would be today? I think he'd be, like, stay-at-home dad and Laura's paying the bills. I think you're giving him too much credit for still being Yeah, I think they're divorced. (laughs) They got divorced shortly after the the film stuff. Well, she kind of rejected the proposal, right? She was just like happy that he threw it out there. Yeah, she was like, oh, thank you. That's cute. So what kind of beers do they have? <laughs> it was like a hard switch in the conversation. Totally. <laughs> there was never going to be a yes to that because that was like, again, the shittiest proposal. It was, oh, She's so. Like, I'm still getting over the fact that my dad died in this movie. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I might need a couple months. Yeah. She's like, so my dad just died, and you basically just said, so yeah, I guess I'll marry you because I haven't found anyone better. Thanks. So Nick Hornby is British. Stephen Frears, who directed this movie, is British. And is also not known for doing comedies. It's kind of bizarre that this worked at all. Well, Brandis doesn't think it's a comedy, so... Nope. You know. It works because it's not a comedy. (laughs) I was going to go with a very, like, out-there take that... I believe this is around the time where like Ricky Gervais started the original office and he also created a very unlikable protagonist. And is this a very British thing that we're like, yeah, not detecting? That is such I a mean, good point. Maybe yeah, that's a good read because like so many like British characters like are not likable and that's on purpose. So that's actually a good read, which raises the question of like, why didn't they just set it in London? 
because John Cusack can't do accents. Have you seen Love and Mercy, him trying to be Brian Wilson? Not no. very good. <laughs> and now I won't. <laughs> I mean, did it have to be him? You could just, like, call up, you know, Nicole's boyfriend, Ian McGregor, and, like, you know. Oh, man, that's a movie I would like so much more. <laughs> Velvet uh, Goldmine 2.0, but just a different genre. <laughs> Sign me up. But who's the British Jack Black? Ooh, well, now you make, you mentioned Ricky Gervais, and I can't get him out of my mind, although he yeah. really bears no relation to Jack Black. I think there is no British Jack Black because Jack Black... No, there is. It's Russell Brand. Russell Brand, though, is different. Like, I feel like Jack Black is such a distinctly American creation because he's so over the top. He's so, like, I'm going to smash this beer in my face in a Speedo and, I don't know, flop around on the ground singing some Katrina in the Waves song. Like... Jack Black is very American to me, very in your face and loud and ridiculous. And British is not, British actors are not usually that. But um, I feel like it would have been better if it had been like British then and set in London and there is no Jack Black equivalent because then there would be no Jack Black equivalent. All right, I'm going to have to stick up for Jack Black in this Uh-oh. movie. Uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I believe this is his breakthrough role, which I'm sure Brandis resents. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you're telling me that if he hadn't been in this, we would not have Jack Black today. <laughs> it's it's very possible. I feel like this was kind of one of the because uh, I think he was like an enemy of the state, and he was totally like just a normal person. What is that even like? And I'll this was it. like the first movie to like figure out what to do with that Jack Black energy. Yeah. The show that he could be in movies, yeah, for sure. <laughs> which is, which is, I know, I know, Brandis is like super upset now. That's not a defense. You're just explaining. You still haven't defended him that he did a good job. <laughs> I think because he's such an asshole to John Cusack in this movie, and he's so good at being an asshole to John Cusack, it gives kind of this nice cathartic release. And I mean, I I can't stop laughing when he sings Laura's Daddy. <laughs> that was a great moment. That that song was pretty insensitive and great. That was maybe the one comedic moment in the film. I will give you that. There was one comedic moment, and it was that song. Brian's like crying, thinking about it. He's <laughs> like turning red. Right. <laughs> okay, Ryan is no longer hosting the podcast, so it's just going to be Brandis and I because Ryan is <laughs> sobbing. <laughs> it's, re- it's really that and him turning off Bell and Sebastian to play Walking on Sunshine. I mean, I think I'm kind of with you in the sense that, like, there is a defense of Jack Black's role in this movie because without him, it would definitely be a, a much more flatline type of film. Like, you need some sort of foil to Rob's like moroseness right so at least he provides that counterweight I think the problem I have with Jack Black is I'm just not entirely on like the Jack Black is super entertaining and charismatic train and so everything that he's done like since this movie has kind of been the same and more and bigger Mm -hmm. and crazier Uh, and I don't know that 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 trajectory has been for me oh that's fair yeah I think this is like the appropriate dose of Jack Black the right dose so I think we've covered things pretty well here. Yeah, we talked about music. That was the success. I think we've covered like 99% of the movie. I mean, this, this movie is like, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, it is a movie about music. So you could kind of just keep um, unfurling different tendrils for a very long time. But we shouldn't mm-hmm. because we don't work in a record store. And that's not life. <laughs> we have real jobs. Do we? Yeah, I like how it doesn't really romanticize working in a record store. Do any movies about record stores romanticize it, though? Don't they all kind of, like, hint on the fact that, like, you're not going to be making money? I don't know. Empire Records seems fun. But that's more like a you work in retail kind of thing. And you're all just, like, yeah. looking to date. It's more just a place for a bunch of high school kids to hang right. out and yeah. have stories. Right. It's like waiting. It was like Ethan store. Embry was excited to be there. And everyone else just had a lot of issues <laughs> to deal with. Which record store would we rather work in, ultimately? High Fidelity? Oh, High Fidelity. Empire Records. Brandis, what's your answer? 
is can I choose neither? <laughs> no, you have to choose one. That's the point of an either or. Empire Records, for sure. They may have had like a lot more issues, but I feel like they were still less miserable assholes. Like I don't want to have to like work with Rob every day. Yeah, I'd be in the back room stalking things with Dick. We'd be like listening to the Minutemen. <laughs> my answer. Actually, what am I saying? Jack Black works in that record store, so obviously I'm choosing Empire <laughs> Records. That was an easy answer. My bad. <laughs> right? Thanks, Brandis and Nicole, for talking about another movie with me. Thank you, Ryan, for That's having That's the point. He's like, I'm cutting you off. He's like, you're done. Yeah. We're like, we're, this, we're, we're cutting this off. This is the end of the podcast. Uh, check us out at SoundtrackCast on Instagram. You can email us at SoundtrackCast at gmail.com. Leave a review. Give us ratings. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. And we will catch you in another two weeks. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.